God is faithful, God is true. He's present with us now, and he'll fulfill all of his commitments heading into the future. In Romans chapters 9 through 11, it's as if Paul then enters into a sermon or an explanation answering an unseen objector. You see, Paul is writing this here, and it's the first century, and the world, the church, might seem to think, but Paul, you say nothing can separate us. You say God's with us, but what about Israel, Paul? What about the Jewish people? Aren't they separated from God? Hasn't God moved on from from them since Messiah has come? And so in Romans 9 through 11, such a crucial passage of Scripture, Paul answers the unseen objector. And in chapter 9, he, he launches out and he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. What is giving Paul such sorrow and anguish in his heart. Verse 3 says, I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites. And to them belong, in in the Greek this is present tense, to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So Paul says he is burdened for the Jewish people. He wants us to know that. He's burdened for his countrymen. In fact, Paul is so burdened for his countrymen that even though God called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that's what Paul says several occasions here, he keeps going to the Jewish people. If you follow Paul through the book of Acts, into every town that he enters into, where does he go first? The synagogue. Guess who's there? The Jewish people, of course. Paul had a burden for the Jewish people, for his own countrymen, so much that he says, if it were possible, I would cut myself off from a relationship with Christ. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. So he continues on explaining things that, you know, if we had time, we would read all of Romans 9 through 11, but um, Travis tells me I've got to be done before the Packers kick off. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Verse 2, I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, Paul says, but not according to knowledge. Because they disregarded the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. By the way, that's what anybody does who doesn't come to God by his way of righteousness. Whether they're atheist, Buddhist, follower of Islam, or Judaism, anybody coming to God in any other way than through Jesus is seeking to establish their own righteousness. 
So they've not submitted themselves to God's righteousness. For Messiah, Christ, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so Paul goes on then in Romans chapter 10 to explain exactly what the Jewish people are missing, and it is the gospel, salvation by faith in Messiah. And he says, but how are they going to know unless someone goes and tells them? You may be surprised to learn that the Jewish people today, statistically, are considered an unreached people group. In fact, if you look at the different unreached groups of even a place like New York City, the top 12 listed groups are all sects of Judaism. Someone once said that if Brooklyn were an island out at sea, we'd been sending missionaries there for years now. The Jewish people are largely unreached with the gospel message today. In fact, the majority of people that I'm able to witness to with the gospel, it's their first time hearing a clear gospel presentation. Paul says, we need to go tell them the gospel. And then we get to Romans 11. Verse 1 says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Now the implications of the answer here are astounding. You see, there must have been some people in Rome already chatting, already thinking, I think God's done with the Jewish people. After all, their religious leadership in Jerusalem rejected him. They handed him over to the Romans. How could God still have promises for a people that would do such a thing? So Paul says, well, has God rejected his people? If God has rejected his people, then I would posit to you this morning that as believers, we're standing on shaky ground because our confidence is in a promise-keeping God. And God has made certain promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his descendants that he will not rescind. And of course, Paul says, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. He's going to say this multiple times in this one chapter. He gives himself as an example. For I, too, am an Israelite, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. He says it again. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew or whom he has chosen. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Now, Paul's referencing here a wonderful story from the Hebrew Bible. When Elijah, if you remember this, he's on the top of Mount Carmel, and he's challenging the prophets of Baal. He ends up calling down fire to consume a sacrifice. Literally a mountaintop experience for Elijah. But then he hears that Jezebel is going to try and kill him, he runs for what must have been hours and hours, maybe days, down to the southern part of Israel, and he is depressed. He's burnt out. 
And he thinks he's the only Israelite who's faithful to God. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, Elijah said. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to take my life. Verse 4, but what was God's reply to him? I've left 7,000 for myself who had not bowed down to Baal. In other words, there were an entire group, thousands of people, even at that time in Israel's history, that were faithful to the God of Israel. And so Paul uses this example, and he says in verse 5, in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. This idea of the remnant is a faithful group of the people of Israel who are faithful to God. Those would be Jewish believers in Jesus today. It's estimated that there are hundreds of thousands across the globe, Jewish believers in Jesus today. That we, we can look at a Jewish believer in Jesus today and it is a direct correlation to God's faithfulness. That's what Paul says here. There's a remnant by grace. If it's by grace, it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Paul says, what then? Verse 7. Well, Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened. We're going to get into this. Paul explores this a little further. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see, and ears that cannot hear to this day. That's a combination there of taking it from Deuteronomy and Isaiah. Verse 9, David says, Let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. This is a really mysterious plan of God here, that he is going to pour out his grace and favor on a select part of the nation and in his divine sovereignty, harden the rest. Why? Well, verse 11, Paul says, I ask, have they stumbled in order to fall? In other words, Paul's asking, did this happen for no reason? Are they down for the count? You see, the stumbling that Paul's referring to here is Israel's initial, by and large, rejection of Jesus when he showed up. Now, remember, thousands of Jewish people believed in Jesus when he first came to Israel. There were throngs following him, the 12 disciples, all Jewish, the earliest church for the first 100 years, primarily all Jewish. But they primarily stumbled in that the majority of the nation rejected him, especially the religious leadership. And that's the stumbling that Paul's talking about here. So he says, have they stumbled in order to fall? Was it for no reason? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, by their initial rejection, salvation has come to the Gentiles. I'm guessing that's the majority of us in this room here. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To make Israel jealous. Fascinating. 
Paul teaching us here that one of the reasons that the gospel went to the nations was because of Israel's rejection. But also, not just so that we could have it and then look down on Israel because they don't, but rather Paul says it's come to the nations, to the Gentiles, to provoke Israel back into a relationship with her God. Now, what does that look like? It was uh, several years ago, we had a small team in Israel sharing the gospel. It was hot, and so we decided to find ourselves a cafe and cool down for a while. So the small group of five or six of us gathered around a table. We're chatting there. And this young Israeli girl, young Jewish gal, comes up to our table and she said, you've got the only table with an outlet in this place. Do you mind if I join you? (laughs) Of course, we said, absolutely, come join us. So we got to know her a little bit, some small chat. We told her that we'd taken a trip all the way from the United States to Israel because we loved the God of Israel, because we loved the people of Israel, and because we loved the Messiah of Israel. She'd never heard this before. So we explained a little bit further about the nature of our personal relationship with God. That's when one of our team members started to quote scripture to this gal. Her name was Orit. Quoted some scripture to her, and I'll never forget this. Orit looked at us with tears in her eyes, and she said, I am embarrassed that you know my scriptures better than I do. You see, here was a Hebrew gal from the nation of Israel, of the Jewish people, and God has used her people to pen the scriptures, to preserve the scriptures. God has used her people, Paul says in Romans 9, to bring the Messiah into the world. And she says, I am embarrassed that you Gentiles know my scriptures better than I do. She was provoked unto jealousy. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. The church, us Gentiles especially, need to be living in such a way that everybody else, but especially the Jewish people, see our lives and they say, there's something different about those folks. They're going through a difficult time, but they seem to have a peace that I don't have. They seem to have a joy that I don't have. Where does that come from? We want to provoke people to jealousy. Paul says that's one of the reasons that salvation has come to the Gentiles. He continues in verse 12. Now, if their stumbling, if their initial rejection brings riches for the world, right? because when Israel rejected, the gospel went to the nations. That was riches for us, the world. He says their failure brought in for the Gentiles so much. How much more will their full number bring? You see, Paul says, if the world gained so much by Israel's rejection, what will the world gain when Israel accepts the Messiah? In case we were unsure who Paul's speaking to, he points it out here in verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you, Gentiles. In view of the fact that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Why, Paul? 
if I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Remember, Paul had a burden for his people that I think over the last two millennia, if the church globally were to just have an inkling, just a drop even of Paul's passion to see the Jewish people saved, the Jewish people may not be considered an unreached people group today. Verse 15, he says, For if their rejection brings reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul here indicating a time when the world will erupt into spiritual vitality. Verse 16, now if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul here referring to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying everything's going to come through them. The Abrahamic covenant came, and then all these wonderful covenants kept coming out of that one, the Davidic covenant, the land covenant, the new covenant. Verse 17, Paul is going to give us a wonderful olive tree illustration that, in my opinion, really helps clarify things for us with regard to Israel. He says, now, if some of the branches, verse 17, were broken off, And you, Gentiles, though a wild olive branch were grafted in among them and have come to share in this rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not brag that you are better than those branches. But if you do brag, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Now what Paul is saying here in verses 17 and 18 is that some of these branches were broken off. That would be, Paul's going to explain it to us here, unbelieving Jewish people were broken off from this olive tree. And he calls Gentiles a wild olive branch. Wild. Why would he do that? It's because Gentiles don't have much in the way of rootedness when it comes to the Hebrew faith, when it comes to the scriptures, when it comes to the Jewish nation. You see, it's perfectly natural, Paul seems to say, for a Jewish person to believe in a Jewish Messiah. What could be more natural? A Jewish person, a Hebrew person, believing what the Hebrew prophets foretold. Makes sense. But you know, 2,000 years ago, before Jesus came, if us Gentiles were in the world, the chances of us aligning ourselves with this small, tiny nation called the Jewish people are very, very slim. It's more likely, as Gentiles, we would have been worshiping a piece of wood somewhere, or a pagan god of some sort, a pantheon of gods, maybe. So it's actually unnatural, Paul says, for Gentiles to align themselves with the Jewish faith. But praise the Lord, God has made that. He's made a way for that. So he says, we've been grafted into this tree. And don't brag that you're grafted in and that some of them have been cut off, Paul says. 
you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, true enough, they were broken off by unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jewish people, he's not going to spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, Gentiles, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, Israel, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, the Jewish people, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25, Paul says, so that you will not be conceited. In other words, Paul says, don't be arrogant, brothers. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel. A partial hardening has come to Israel until. So two things I want to point out about this. It's been written extensively in many commentaries down through the ages that Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. Israel is cut off from God's plan. They had their chance, they were disobedient, and now God's moved on. As I mentioned earlier, that's not the clear teaching of Scripture. And if that's the case, we got some problems. Paul says a partial hardening has come on Israel. There is a part of Israel that is hardened, but there is a remnant, a faithful group by God's grace. And it is until... It is until something happens, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Wow. Paul says in God's sovereignty, in his plans, in his choosing, God has set it up so that there's eventually going to come a time when that final Gentile comes to faith, and then something else happens. Verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Now, Paul isn't the first one to write about Israel's end-time salvation here. In fact, the prophets were centuries before Paul. And Paul quotes the prophets here. He says, the liberator will come from Zion. That's Jerusalem. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. That's Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Did you know that we're living in the new covenant era? A time when we get the law written on our hearts and minds and we get new hearts and the spirit indwells us. It's a wonderful passage talked about by Jeremiah in chapter 31. Did you know that part of the new covenant promises are Israel's regathering and salvation? That's why Paul can say here that one day all Israel is going to be saved. Now let me tell you uh, a couple different ways this is interpreted. 
one wrong way it's interpreted is that people say one day all Israel is going to be saved and therefore we don't need to share the gospel with them because going back for all time and in all time future, all Israel is going to be saved. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. We know that nobody comes to faith except through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And when he said that, in context, he was speaking to a group of Jewish people. So Jewish people need to hear the gospel. I think the more likely interpretation in what the context, it fits with the context here, is that there's going to come a day in the eschatological future when whoever is around from the nation at that time will place their faith in Jesus. You see, Jesus alludes to this as well. In the book of Luke, if you'd turn there, when Jesus connects his return to Jerusalem to the Jewish people's welcoming of him. Did you know that Jesus did that? Luke chapter 13 Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus here, looking out over Jerusalem, says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Now you'd think after a statement like that, Jesus would go on to condemn Israel, but he doesn't. Instead, he speaks lovingly of her and says, How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house, or the temple, is abandoned to you. And sure enough, 40 years after Jesus said this, Jerusalem experienced its judgment and the temple was destroyed. And if Jesus would have stopped right there, we'd have quite a problem, but he doesn't. He says, and I tell you, you will not see me until Jerusalem, until the time comes when you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, in this passage and other passages like Zechariah 12, the return of the Messiah to Israel is connected directly with Israel's welcoming of him. In light of that, how important is it to minister among the Jewish people? Pretty important, I'd say. Verse 28, Paul continues in chapter 11 of Romans, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Now notice they're not your enemies, which is, how many people interpreted this down through the centuries and caused horrific Christian anti-Semitism. He says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Paul says they're enemies of the gospel, not your enemies. But regarding election, regarding chosenness, regarding God's unconditional promises, his covenants that he's promised to Israel and the Jewish people, they are loved because of the patriarchs. And in case we had any doubt, Paul says, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable. Aren't you glad that God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable? Amen. 
When, oftentimes, when I talk to people about Israel and the Jewish people, the, question, the, the topic remains at kind of a surface level. And, and oftentimes, my conversations deal with, oh, but I thought I was chosen, and I thought that you know, this, this was that way. And I said, oh, you are chosen. Absolutely, you're chosen and predestined from the foundation of the world, the scriptures teach us. Praise God. But Gentile inclusion does not mean Jewish exclusion. Gentile inclusion does not mean Jewish exclusion. God has two separate entities in history here. The church, which was birthed shortly after Jesus ascended, and Israel. And he's not going to abandon either one of them. And if God does abandon Israel and the Jewish people, if he's cast them off because of disobedience, what hope do we have that Jesus will return for us? And so the conversation is not just a surface conversation about what do we believe about Israel and so forth. It actually is connected to the very character of God on whether or not he's faithful. Verse 30, Paul says, As you once disobeyed God, Gentiles, but now have received mercy through their, Israel's, disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, Gentiles, so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy in all. And then Paul gives us a wonderful hymn, a wonderful close to this section here because we're talking about things that are beyond our comprehension, really, on why God is doing this. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And just as the scriptures predict in multiple places that there will come a day when God will sprinkle Israel with clean water, Ezekiel chapter 36 uses that illustration. Just as there will come a day when God will change them radically from the inside out, the great thing is we don't have to wait for that time for us to experience that on an individual level. Because part of the new covenant promises are that if we simply believe, God will give us a new heart. God will give us an indwelling of his Holy Spirit. That's the good news. And I'm not sure what your status is this morning, sitting here in a room this large. There are usually some folks who maybe are undecided about who Jesus is. And so I want to deliver you the good news that, yes, we have a problem, and it's called sin. And sin has separated us from a holy God. It's created a great chasm it's, it's not too hard to find sin nowadays, is it? But this is where God has provided a wonderful solution to our problem of being separated from God. And that's that God loved us, each and every one of us individually, so much 
that he came in the person of his son, fully God, fully human, and he lived a perfect life because he loved the world so much. And he willingly endured the worst kind of death possible, death on a cross. But then, three days later, God raised him from the grave, proving that his son was who he said he was. And now we're told that if anybody believes in him, we will not perish but have everlasting life, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or female. It is available to anybody. And so if you've not yet made that decision this morning to place your faith in the only one who can save you, I'd invite you to do that this morning. Jesus of Nazareth, he's worthy. In conclusion this morning, I'd like to just read a quote by Walt Kaiser, who was a professor emeritus at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He says this in his conclusion of studying Romans chapter 11. It is possible that the Gentile Christian church has lost its rootage and connectedness with its past and the single plan of redemption that has stretched from eternity to eternity. When many in the church denied a physical Israel as being part of God's plan, it lost its missionary and evangelistic strategy for Jews. For the church floated in the air without any antecedent history of or connectivity to the plan of God delivered in and through Israel. God's plan of salvation cannot be announced without taking the promise of God given to Israel and her history into its purview. The two-step program of Paul appears to be more than a matter of personal strategy. It is a program to go to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And it has a divine rationale behind it. It would be wise for the church to once again take another look at how she's carrying out the work of the kingdom and how she is regarding the nation of Israel. Otherwise, we'll have small victories here and there, but we will miss the full favor of our Lord, who calls us to a much higher biblical standard of performance for the sake of his excellent name and his Jewish people. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. From Genesis to Revelation, you are nothing but faithful. And I thank you, Lord, that you have expanded your program to include the Gentiles. And it wasn't a part, it wasn't a plan B, Lord, we know that. It was always in your plans. But we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we thank you that you have continued to remain faithful to your people. And because we can see that, we know for sure that you will remain faithful to each one of us individually until the day that you return. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.